Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collins Guitars and Mandolins, each and every one built from the sound up in Austin, Texas. This episode is also brought to you by Peghead Nation, the home of Roots Music Instruction. If you want to improve your playing, join me and thousands of other pickers getting better every day at pegheadnation.com. Hi, this is Mike Marshall, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jamalong, the podcast for anyone and everyone who plays bluegrass. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Bluegrass Jamalong. Um, first thing is apologies for there being no backing tracks this week. I've had COVID for the last two weeks and just haven't really managed to get around to it. Um, but that's all behind me now and we'll crack on with some more tunes next week. But what I have had time to do was catch up with Mike Marshall and that's the interview you're about to hear. And it was a you know an absolute treat chatting to Mike. Um, if you don't know who Mike Marshall is, where have you been? Where have you been? Uh, Mike is just one of the most incredible mandolin players and just such a prominent figure over the kind of acoustic scene in the US over the past sort of several decades really I mean just you know the list of people he's played with um, Jerry Douglas Bella Fleck Tony Rice Mark O'Connor Stefan Grappelli Daryl Anger he's duets with Chris Thiele he's recorded Bach he's you know immersed himself in Brazilian Shura music he you know he's he's a traditionalist and a progressive, and um, you'll hear a bit about that in the interview. Um, we also chat about his teaching, we chat about his collaboration with Northfield Mandolins, um, and just get deep into all sorts of stuff. It's a, it's a just a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Um, so yeah, I'm not going to hang around, I'm going to just introduce it now, and uh, you can crack on. There's a couple of other podcasts Mike's done in the past where, kind of as I usually do, I'm, I'll link them in the show notes, so rather than Mike sort of repeating his life story here um you can just go listen to those because they're great and i you know i'm I'm not going to improve on those so here's our conversation uh mike marshall on bluegrass jamalong so mike marshall welcome to bluegrass jamalong it's so nice to be here a world i've been jamming along in for quite a few years (laughs) you've been jamming along in quite a few worlds from from what i can gather i think that's the one of the most interesting things i am I think I first encountered you when I started playing mandolin, and I think it was an episode of Wood Songs with you and Chris Thiele, oh, wow, and you yeah. did your duets project. And so I listened to that, and I thought, wow, I didn't know music could sound like this. And then just sort of followed some threads and found your work with um, David Grisman and then some of the Brazilian Choro stuff that you'd done, and mm-hmm. it came pretty clear pretty quickly that you cover a lot of bases musically, and I found that found that fascinating. Um and sort of wondered how, if in your mind, there's much distinction between those things, if they're all just, they all feel like the same kind of thing. They're just different expressions. Well, no, they're distinct, clearly. They they have different histories and a different musical language and a different swing to each of them rhythmically. And you've got to kind of dive in and understand all that stuff and, and be willing to... Uh, kind of shed your old skin and, and take on something new and, and really absorb it as much as you can, uh, especially if it's from a really different place than where you grew up. Well, I, I find that sort of endlessly interesting because, um, like, obviously I'm getting into playing bluegrass, but I grew up in the UK, kind of mm. well away from the tradition of all that. And that 
that sort of question of a connection to the music I think is fascinating because you sort of grew up in Pennsylvania then Florida is that right that's right Florida is when I got into music we moved there when I was about uh, 11 or 12 I had been taking a few guitar lessons in Pennsylvania but didn't learn that much it was when I got to Florida and hooked up with a great teacher as a youngster and he played all the different string instruments and we started our first teenage bluegrass band with some of his students and that introduced me to the world of bluegrass. I mean, I was coming at it from the beginning as a foreigner, much like you would living in a different place than the music, you know. Our family didn't play, know anything about the music, for instance, even though I got into it in the South. You know, we were Northerners. So I've always thought of uh, of music as something you come to from another place, you know. And, of course, living in the South as long as I did and getting so involved in it, in the early seventies and meeting all the great players at the festivals that were happening at that time. When I moved to California to join David Grisman's band, some of the bluegrass pickers out there thought of me as like the real thing, somebody from the South. (laughs) And I always thought of that as kind of ironic. (laughs) And maybe I was, I mean, I think that these lines do get a little fuzzy once somebody does the work that's needed to be done, then they do become a part of the fabric of what that music is, even if they're not from that place. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting perspective because particularly with the music like bluegrass, sort of, although it was guised in a particular place, it came from all over the place. Like, you know, it came from Africa. That's the thing I always came from Europe and, you know, it may have been raised somewhere, but it wasn't necessarily sort of, conceived there it is a fusion of from its inception i mean everything american is we all came from all these different places and we crashed into each other and created bluegrass and rock and roll and country music and jazz and all these forms that are now traditional quote unquote but at their inception they were a mixture and and so that's the, the that meeting point is the thing that's always interested me about all kinds of music. Yeah, and I think there is that. I think there's a, a sense with bluegrass because a lot of the source material was traditional. The mm. fiddle tunes and a lot of the the, the songs that were sung, but the, the, it is a traditional mm. music and it is an entirely sort of invented thing, invented relatively recently. That's right. I mean, it, it certainly... They were drawing from the great British Isles fiddle traditions and all the great songs, uh, sea chanties and religious songs that came over with all the uh, immigrants from that part of the world. But the rhythm, of course, changed immediately once it connected with the African roots that were in place and the swing of the blues uh, was so much a part of everything American. Um and then as you go forward in, in the development of the music with Bill Monroe, I mean, he was a songwriter. He wrote his own songs and, and all the guys who came after him wrote their own material. So that's all new music. All of his great instrumentals that we think of as traditional bluegrass. He actually wrote a lot of that stuff on the mandolin, Earl Scruggs writing banjo tunes. And, um, so as the music got into the thirties and forties and fifties, it, it became very 
much effusion. And the guys were pushing the envelope technically on their instruments way beyond what the generation before them had ever done. And my theory on that is because their generation was the first to hear radio. And that's what really gave birth to bluegrass. It was the fact that these hillbillies were hearing other music from the big cities, whether it was jazz or classical music or popular music. And I think that's that's really true of like where I, you know where where and when I grew up, the Beatles were you know the Beatles had only disbanded a few years before I was born, and they were still a huge thing. But they mm-hmm. lived in a port city and had access to music coming in from all over the world that other people didn't necessarily. And it is, I think, oh. I think it's true, you know, maybe that the Beatles didn't just arrive and invent pop music. The Beatles synthesized right. like I Buddy Holly. I and... knew that about Liverpool. Yeah. It was a very hotbed of mixing of worlds. It's it's sort of the, the port on that side of the UK that everything came in and out of to go to the States. So they would get blues records in Liverpool and rock and roll and things would come back through the docks, you know, and wow. and be around before some other cities got them, and um, so the Beat, the Beatles are seen as having invented something, but actually, what they did was just synthesize a whole load of things, like the Everly Brothers, and you know, right. early country, country music. music, and you know, put it together and, and put their own spin on it, you know, in the same way that Mozart didn't invent any genres of music; he was just incredible at all the ones he he found himself working. Right. And um, so, I think that's endlessly fascinating. Endlessly fascinating. I've always thought of that, like, why is British pop music so good? You know, why is there such a long history of great music coming out of there, as opposed to some of the other European countries? And I always thought of the blues uh, fanatics who were collecting a lot of that music. The African influence on American music played a part in that, that's my guess. And language probably helps, having songs sung in a language that that travels. Um, but yeah, yeah, totally. You know, Britain has definitely punched above its weight and its size in terms of contribution to pop music. And it's mm-hmm. it's really interesting you talk here and you talk about bluegrass in that sense as a, a thing that is relatively recent. And we this sort of small period of its inception is seen as a almost sort of holy grail thing. And yet, the music moved on pretty quickly. And that sure ad- that original inception of it was actually pretty progressive in itself at the time. Extremely. I always try to remind folks of that, that what Bill Monroe was doing on the mandolin, nobody had ever done that. You know, he was the David Grisman or the Chris Seeley of his day. And then you look at Earl Scruggs and what he did at a banjo. What is so traditional about that? (laughs) It was the most modern, freaky thing anybody could ever have imagined at the time. Now, the records had such a big influence on the whole culture of people that it has become iconic. And now it, it wants to be etched in stone by the next generation. And that's the way you have to play it. I, I get that. It's, it's understandable how it could have that kind of influence and that kind of magnitude to where you would want to just hold it and hold it in time and not let it change. I think that's also true of anything that we love. I think. Um, sure. There's there's a, a group of people who love jazz who want it to sound like it sounded in the fifties, and there's yeah. but there's also with with any with bands even there's always a fraction of people who go oh I love their early work like I like the mm-hmm. first couple and like we we like mm-hmm. if we love something we sort of want to preserve it in this weird like pin it down like a butterfly 
Well, when it has that kind of influence on us and it just blows our mind, you know, especially when we're at a certain age. I mean, that's powerful stuff. And it, it gives, you know, you want to hold it. You know, there are early classical musicians who want to play on period instruments. And, and I get that, you know, the music sounds different and it feels different with a Baroque bow and gut strings on a violin. That's a, that's a whole other sound. And I love that there are people who want to, want to do that. I've always been one to kind of push at the boundaries. I just thought of these, there's like, there's, there's two worlds and they both have tons of validity, you know, reaching forward with one hand towards where the music might be able to go, but at the same time, reaching backwards and understanding where it came from. And, and just as much as I'm thought of as a progressive bluegrass musician, I mean, I really appreciate the bands that came before. And, you know, when I hear Tony Rice and the Bluegrass Album Band, and that sort of iconic sound of that music that's never been played as well before or since. I, I, I love that. And I, I want to go back there as a source material you know, for anything I'm doing. That's where I go. This, um, it was a great quote. I listened to a podcast um, that you did, quite a random sort of, the, a guy called Michael Marshall, just interviewing other people called Mike Marshall or Michael Marshall. And um, Oh, right. Did that finally come out? I, I hadn't heard that one. <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant. It's, it's such an interesting angle to come at it from. Um, but I'll put a link in the show notes so people can go and listen because it's great. Um, but you said this, you said, I stand on the shoulders of this great tradition. I think it's our responsibility as musicians. If we're going to push forward, we also have to reach back almost with equal force. And I think that's a lovely way of kind of um, capturing the power of both of those things. Because if you're going to progress, you have to progress from somewhere. That's it. And I, and I certainly can hear when a musician who calls himself a bluegrass musician is the, their only reference point is stuff that's, come out in the last five or six years you know that's uh and then when somebody's understanding something a little deeper and then they, then you can go further back you know you look at the old time music you know the fiddle tunes from that bruce molsky and, and folks like that you know then that's a god how deep can you go you can it just keeps going right <laughs> i mean that's the joy of music isn't it you find a thing and then you start pulling on the threads and see where you end up and you might oh, yeah. you might love an album that came out last week and it takes you back to something from 200 years yeah. ago, you know? I'm also one who believes everybody's entitled to their window in. You know, for me, it was things like the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band in the mid-70s or the, or the Will the Circle Be Unbroken albums or John Hartford, I mean, because I was that age and that music was coming out. And that led me to Doc Watson and, and Bill Monroe and Ralph Stanley. But for somebody slightly older than me, like David Grisman, for instance, who I worked with, for him, you know, Will the Circle Being Broken wasn't that interesting because it was this hippie band from California that were younger than him putting that thing together. And he liked the original recordings of those songs. So I kind of get that, you know. Well, going back to your original idea of, hey, man, you got to hear the real stuff. It's, it's, it's here, you know, it's like earlier is always better and there's that whole you know i guess i'm part of a generation that the window in was oh brother you know like yeah, oh brother we're out exactly. there came out and that you you know 
that that might get and you in on one level. Mine might then. have been Deliverance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> another yeah. movie, and uh, those are powerful moments in culture when it. Carol Anger has a theory that it's like the cicadas. They come back every seven years. You need a movie to remind <laughs> Americans who they're, what their traditional music sounds like. Yeah, I love that idea. I love that. And that's, that's, Deliverance is a really interesting um, example of that because not only did it introduce the music, it also maybe added some weight to an unhelpful stereotype around the music. And uh, I was listening to something Baylor Flack um, was chatting about the other day around about his new album, and he's just saying he always always felt a drive to, in some way, reclaim the banjo and have yeah. it associated with stuff that wasn't just that. Much as he loves yeah. bluegrass and fiddle tunes, and he sort of felt. Right. And I wondered um, what your experience was with the mandolin, because the mandolin, mandolin is culturally there's less weight of expectation on it because it has more connotations. That's true. It's got a sort of wider tradition of cultures that it's been a part of and yet there's still that you know mandolin means italian music especially in europe you know living here uh, puts a whole nother spin on that whole question for me um not only the mandolin but bluegrass and what does bluegrass yeah, sure. mean in germany you know it means well maybe bonanza or the Beverly Hillbillies, maybe, but certainly it's just a very shallow thought about what is country music, what is bluegrass. It's, uh, I come from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. You know? Yeah, yeah. And the mandolin, of course, and the, there's just no association with it culturally in terms of bluegrass or funk, anything rhythmically funky. And, uh, Except, of course, there are circles of folks here who understand much deeper than that. But I'm just speaking in a general sense. Um, so, yeah, I've kind of been on a crusade my whole life <laughs> to uh, show that the mandolin was capable of so much more. Um, and and to look at and to use it as a vehicle for looking at all these different styles of music uh, around the world and to learn and I think that's I think that's a really interesting, um, really interesting facet of the music over the past sort of few decades because the, it certainly feels like, um, like with you on mandolin, with Baylor on banjo, and with Jerry Douglas on dobro, this sort of sense mm. of a bunch of players taking an instrument that might be seen as quite confined to one thing and going, "You can do anything on this. Watch, I'll mm-hmm. show you." And the places mm. that that's gone, you know, while at the same time remaining really sort of grounded and rooted in the American acoustic tradition as well. Probably what drew me to the instrument in the first place was the fact that it hadn't been explored as much as, say, the guitar. If you look at the guitar in the 20th century, it's just like, whoa. And so I love this idea that this little instrument could be taken to so many other places. It just seemed like wide open possibilities, terrain to, to look at. And at what what sort of point in that journey did the classical stuff come in? Was that quite an early development? It, it actually was pretty early. I was taking violin lessons. Well, the same teacher that taught me mandolin and guitar might have shown me a violin and showed me how to hold the bow. That was about it. So I kind of dove into studying on my own and then just found my way somehow towards uh, 
violin method books and things like the wolf art studies and the, uh, the different uh, method books from the 19th, early 20th century. And uh, just started playing that music, not only on violin, but on mandolin too, because there were no mandolin methods that I knew of at that mm-hmm. time to really study the classical mandolin. So I immediately found my way to Bach, probably as a 17-year-old, and um, thought, well, this is some amazing music that seems impossible to play on the mandolin. And yet, maybe it's not. <laughs> and so spent many years diving into it. might have recorded the first... Um, I recorded the E major prelude to the third partita of the solo violin repertoire on my first record on Rounder. When was that? 1982 or something. Um, so I always felt like, gosh, somebody should record all of this stuff. <laughs> Maybe I can. And it would be, what, 30 years later before Chris Thiele would record half of it. <laughs> and we're still waiting for that second half. It's just really deep music, and it, it can be played on the mandolin. I think we know that now. Technique had to get a little bit better, uh, at least mm. from the bluegrass and folk uh, mandolin. Mandolin has always gone up and down in terms of its involvement as a serious classical instrument within classical music. And, um, you know, you could say that the period after the great mandolin orchestra period of of the teens and their 20s, that the mandolin kind of went into a sleepy period uh, and became like a folk instrument in America and is now finding its way out of that, that period into a more serious instrument that's capable of a lot more. I like to think I'm part of that move. Yeah, absolutely. That's happened. And it is interesting, isn't it? It's that idea of windows in, like for a generation, mandolin probably means losing my religion. And some people have gone, what's oh, that? What's that? Maggie May. Oh, your Cophead <laughs> Road or whatever. Um, and right, people, you can, you go, can add that? a little tinkly on top of a pop song. Yeah. Right. Boy, we've come a long way, haven't we? Totally. And I think... Um, I think that's this a great point about the mandolin sort of being ripe for exploration still, because um, it's got that thing of oh my God. it's got that thing of being the same tuning as a, a violin. So there's you know centuries worth of applicable repertoire if it's adapted, as you say. Um, but at the same time, it's a very different method of tone production, so it requires a totally different approach at the same time as that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I started my modern mandolin quartet for that reason. You know, first time I played a mando cello was probably at David Grisman's house when I joined his group. And I immediately thought, well, wait, you've got mando cello, mandola, tune like a viola, and two mandolins. Why not do a string quartet with these instruments? So we did that for about 10 years and recorded like three or four records for Wyndham Hill. And it was a great experience. That was, that was a way for me to study classical music as much as anything, you know, uh, because as a mandolin player, you weren't going to get hired in a symphony or, you know, there wasn't enough repertoire around to justify it being a member of a chamber ensemble. So I thought, well, if we're going to have to just do this ourselves. If I want to learn how to play Debussy or, or, or Mendelssohn or Bach in an ensemble, we're going to have to just do it 
with the mandolin group. And it was a great experience, great, great way for me to study that music and get to learn and play that music. I guess if you're a professional classical mandolin player, you might occasionally get a call if they're doing Don Giovanni at the Opera House, but that's probably it. Exactly. No, you wouldn't get the call because they would just have one of the violin players. <laughs> so you don't even get the one gig there is. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's what's so fascinating about another aspect of being in Germany here. That, well, my wife, Katarina Lichtenberg, has the, what is probably the only position in a music conservatory where you can study mandolin at a serious level. And so since meeting her, I've learned about all this repertoire that the mandolin has for itself that I didn't knew nothing about being an American coming from bluegrass. Folks like Kalat, Rafael Kalachi and uh, Kurohara, a great Japanese uh, composer that wrote a lot of stuff for solo mandolin. So this has been a great experience for me, seeing how she runs her school and all of her students coming out of there. We'll be right back with you just after this. Collins Guitars has been a long-time supporter of the bluegrass community, from collaborating with artists to sponsoring festivals big and small, and now by sponsoring Bluegrass Jamalong. Handmade in Austin, Texas, every Collings guitar and mandolin that leaves the shop is built from the sound up, and the team loves seeing a Collings in the hands of players of all levels, from local musicians to world-renowned pickers. Visit collingsguitars.com for more. This episode is also brought to you by Peghead Nation, the home of Roots Music Instruction. With 65 streaming video courses for guitar, mandolin, banjo, fiddle, dobro, bass and ukulele from some of the leading names in acoustic music, Peghead Nation is something for every picker. You'll learn the tunes and techniques you need to join in at jams and play the music you love, plus advanced techniques like improvisation, theory and ear training. Your first course is just $20 per month and you can add more for $10 a month. Sign up for any course and get your first month free with the promo code JAMALONG, all one word. Join thousands of other players, including me, who are advancing on their instruments and having more fun playing the roots music they love at pegheadnation.com. Well, that sort of provides quite a nice segue to chat about teaching because I think um, having broken so much ground and taken the mandolin to new places, teaching's become quite a big part of what you do now. And um, it seems to be be true for a lot of bluegrass players, actually. A lot of bluegrass players seem to teach as well. And um, I I love the way that's, you know, the the shift in available stuff now, the amount of access you can have wherever you are in the world to, you know, I I get guitar lessons from Brian Sutton on the Artist Works um, site, which you also teach at. And that's like, I live in London, even if I could afford to pay Brian Sutton to be my guitar teacher, it would cost me more to get there than to pay for the lessons. And And it's pretty intimate, right? I mean, he can really give you the stuff that you need. Well, I mean, that's the, yeah. That system. You actually get somebody looking at the way you play, not just saying, here's how you play Salt Creek. It's like, here's how you can approach it. Um, and I saw what I, I heard an interview you did on the Artist Works podcast actually um, fairly recently. You were talking to Patricia about having reached, I think, eight thousand video responses, um, and you you were basically saying that there's half a dozen key issues that you tend to address over and over again with people. Um, and mm. I wonder, I was curious to know what they were, what the sort of the main oh the main sort of great great question. Yeah, um, one of the things the mandolin suffers from that say the violin doesn't and probably the piano doesn't 
is there, especially American mandolin tradition, is that there was never a conversation about like something as simple as like, how should we hold this instrument? And um, no thought about ergonomically what, what works best. You know, when you go take a violin lesson, the teacher immediately deals with that as a five-year-old kid. You know, first of all, you put the violin under your chin, right? Unlike the old time fiddlers of the 19th century who might've held it under their belly, you know, way down here, choked up on the bow and held it like a baseball bat, just fiddle, you know, and turn their hand backwards. You know, you can't see this in radio land, but (laughs) if you're a violin player, you know what I'm talking about. Um, So now you put the violin under your chin, you wear a shoulder rest, so, so you don't have to put your neck so far down, all these little details. And you hold your hands a certain way. Here's how you hold the bow. I mean, they can spend a few weeks just talking about that. Hmm. So I immediately see all those things when people send me a video. That's the beauty of artist works. I immediately get to see how a person is just holding their instrument and whether it's ergonomically working. So a big one is like the mandolin's small. So I like to use a footstool or put my foot on a case, you know, like a classical guitarist would, to get the left leg elevated so that the instrument is sitting on your body at an angle and you're touching on both legs and your chest and your right arm. Is all these four different contact points are holding the instrument steady so that it's not moving around when you're playing it. Yeah. Another one is the left hand, again, just like the violin, not letting the palm of the hand touch the back of the neck, keeping your wrist straight on your left hand. That's that's another one that I see a lot. There's things like when you play up a string, not lifting the index finger, like um, because you're going to come back to it. <laughs> just simple little ideas like that that, uh, just leave your index finger down because you're coming back. You don't have to reset it. Um, pick direction is a big one. Um, folks tend to want to sometimes play with a lot more downstrokes in, when they're playing eighth notes instead of playing down, up, down, up. Mm. And, and if they're playing something syncopated, I'm, I'm kind of big on this idea that the syncopated notes should be upstrokes and the, and the downbeat notes should be downstrokes. Sometimes folks will play everything with a downstroke, and, you know, it's just or or they'll only play downstrokes when they change strings. They always use a new downstroke. So a lot of my exercises have to do with getting comfortable with weaving in and out of the four strings with continuous down up down up, just to get used to that physical sensation. Yeah, I remember that from getting, buying one of your Fingerbusters books when I started playing mandolin and just getting my head around that. Okay, you know about that. Yeah, you know, like a, a workout for the for the hands. Um, Ten pages of open strings. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true, you got yeah, getting that stuff I'm right makes that. such a difference. I, I got obsessive, you know. I love getting obsessive about these things. But I think once stuff like that is internalized and you're not thinking about it, um, it just right. frees you up to think about something at a slightly higher level or a different facet or the tone you're producing or musicality or, you know, just one less thing to be at the front of your mind, isn't it? I think that it's a a simple thing that can can become just muscle memory and and you just do it then at a certain point. You're right. And then you're off to the races. There's another thing about playing rhythm, chop chords that um, 
just to not let it sustain very much. It's really supposed to be a snare drum pop. And so you get this nice tight thing as opposed to letting it ring. It's it's funny how little things like that, uh, folks, I don't know why it doesn't necessarily register until somebody points it out to them. You know, that's mm. that's why you have to see somebody playing. It's very hard to learn off YouTube on your own because you just can't see this stuff. You can't see what you're doing when you're doing it. Totally. And it's yeah. Serious. And as much as the advice people give you is to record yourself and film yourself and watch it back, like so many people don't do that. Um, and that's the p- mm. part of the power of artist works really is just in sitting at home and turning your phone on and recording yourself. And it makes oh, you so, wow. even before you, before you submit it, it makes you so aware of what you look like and sound like. And before somebody even gives you feedback, right. you've, learned, you've learned something. Well, I have to laugh because um, some people will say, damn, I recorded this thing 10 times before it's got one I could send you. And I'm like, great. That's (laughs) wonderful. Because I'm already having this effect on you as a student before we even meet. And you're already doing all the stuff that I would have probably told you to do anyway. You're now self-correcting. And so as as nerve-wracking as that is for folks to do and to get one that's good enough, I'm always encouraging them to just dive in, give it a go. They'll learn. They'll get better just from that, just from watching themselves. Yeah. And I think the other thing you get from having a teacher interact with you one-to-one is the flip side of there being so much material out there now. Like there's so Mm. much, so much. You sort of need somebody to curate it for you a bit and tell you what you should be focusing on because it's overwhelming. Yeah. It is. It is. We're living in that time now. Of, um, have we gotten to the point where there's enough content now? Can we all stop making stuff? You can't tell me that. I make. I make a podcast. I have to keep making content. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. <laughs> That's what we're doing right now. We better keep it up because tomorrow this shit is out of date. Nobody cares. We gotta get a new one up. I'm kind of. I kind of had it with that. You know. I, I'm. I'm kind of getting done with. Like, it's just uh, the information age. Okay, great. Um, there's enough there's enough out there to, to work on, and there's enough tunes to learn. And, um, I don't know. I like composing. I still want to compose. But I don't need to see what somebody's cappuccino looks like <laughs> i think i i read a book the other well i'm I'm a bit of um i'm a bit of a like it's a bit of an issue for me in in that way and that i love a new idea i love rather than implementing stuff that i've, mm. I've learned i want to learn more things and it can get in the way sometimes mm. and i read a great book the other day that just said it said like instead of reading a new book that you think might teach you something groundbreaking go back to a book that already has like go back to a book that changed wow. your life and read it again because you won't have, you, you will have implemented 10% of what you learned. Like underline, wow. underline stuff when you enjoy it in a book and go back to it. You don't need another book. You need to absorb the ones you've read. Nice. You know, That's a great, great, great idea. That's beautiful. I might do that. I read Moby Dick about 20 years ago. Blew my mind. I might go visit it again. <laughs> I love rereading stuff. And it's a bit, it's a bit like what you were saying early on about... Um, 
some of the fundamental things about like just the chop in mandolin. And if you're a mandolin player in a band, most of what you're going to be doing is mm. chopping. So to focus That's on that and ninety percent of your job. But we don't spend ninety percent of our time practicing. Don't do it. too many wiki wackies. Just the backbeat is fine. You know, just to think of the bluegrass band as this these interlocking wheels or gears that all have a different function. You know, the bass goes boom, the mandolin goes chuck. The guitar sustains. You don't have to sustain. The banjo's rolling 16th notes, so you don't want to do too much chicka 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 because it's going to get in the way of his dingy 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 dingy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a beautiful, perfect chamber ensemble. Or a jet, or it's a drum set. Each guy's a limb. I mean, I started out as a drummer, and the the point I realised that a bluegrass band is basically a five person drum kit sort of blew my mm. mind blew my mind slightly. And it's such a you know when it's you hear that rhythm just ticking over, it sounds incredible. Mm. It's there a joy. All those things lock into each other like it should sound like one person. Who's your favourite? bluegrass band oh, when you think of that i mean part of it i i totally um i'm totally with you on the sort of bluegrass album band sort of stuff mm. um but i love i love hearing how punch brothers can take that somewhere entirely different but it's like a track like movement and location that is so almost mm. uh, it's almost computer generated and it's it's these little patterns that just roll over each other mm. but it's also got such a groove mm. that's brilliant and that's no, really, really the, cool. You know, to be able to take that living, breathing heart. This is why I love acoustic music, is that every dynamic you want to create, you've got to create it. You can't just turn stuff up and equalize it and whack on your distortion pedal and you are why. You've got to physically create the... Mm -hmm. And just hear so all kinds of acoustic music, whether it's, you know, going to see a, an opera in person or hear a string quartet pass a melody around between them that's certainly what attracted me to acoustic music and why I always came back to it, even though I touched on electric instruments here and there. It's just that there's always a felt like a little bit of a disconnect between me and the sound I was making. It was more important the pedal and the amp and the, than it was the, in the hands. Of course, that's not true when you listen to Jimi Hendrix or uh, some of the greats. You know, you can tell that it's, it is in the hands, but... Um, the acoustic thing is just so immediate. You know, it's just right there. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like hearing instruments sort of breathe and the just that mm. dynamic range that is that is possible but requires work is just it never ceases to fascinate me. Um great. Now it'd be really very cool to talk around a few of the other bits you've got going on. And we sort of talked back earlier about um you're talking about period instruments and that, you know, playing things on original instruments. And, and one thing that I think is sort of really cool is that in the last 10 or 20 years, obviously there's this golden age of, you know, pre-war instrument building in America, sort of law mandolins and some mm -hmm. of the old Martins. But the quality of instruments mm -hmm. available to the general public now has got so much better. And and one of the things yeah. you've been doing yeah. is working with Northfield mandolins on there to bring, mm -hmm. I've played a few and they're incredible mandolins that hold their own against some much more expensive ones. Um, and I'm just curious how, how, how you got into that, where that started really. Well, it started with this relationship with the man who runs the company, Adrian Begale. 
he was at this uh, workshop that we often play, uh, teach at in North Carolina, Asheville, North Carolina, called the Swananoa Gathering. And he had a little booth there with some of his instruments. And I had maybe seen one of his instruments. I saw Adam Steffi playing one at our mandolin camp maybe a couple years before that and thought, ooh, that's pretty damn nice. Of course, in his hands, <laughs> anything would sound nice. Then when I met Adrian, I realized that I had a kindred spirit in that here was somebody I could really talk to about mandolins and share with him. You know, when somebody builds an instrument, especially a, a Geppetto type builder that's building one at a time, even though you might love his instruments, it's very difficult to to be critical and and have a real conversation about like, well, I like your instruments, but what about this? Can, can we talk about, is it possible to get more of this or more of that? Um, maybe because it's so personal to them. It's a piece of art, you know, and to criticize somebody's art is rough. Yeah. But with Adrian, it was immediate that, you know, he said, you have one of the greatest mandolins in the world. You're Lloyd Lore. Um, can we sit down and talk about what we could do with these Northfields to make them come close to the sound that your mandolin has? And also, can is it possible to imagine going beyond that? And so I was like, oh boy, let's go, man. Let's, let's have this conversation. It was a lot of a lot of hang time, a lot of bottles of wine, a lot of <laughs> studio time going in, going in the studio with mandolins, recording the same bit of it, of melodic material or, or rhythm so that you could switch on a mixing console between instruments and really hear what you're hearing. So we just, you know, he's just somebody who was capable and willing to go all, go all the way down into the rabbit hole. And really have an honest conversation about it. Mm. Say, well, this is great, but this part here is. So that's that's really what it what it's about. It's about the relationship with him and and, and his builders are. Uh, you know, it's funny because he's in Marshall, Michigan, yeah. places, <laughs> and uh, now they build the instruments there and in China, and the man who's the head builder is actually Japanese. <laughs> so you've got these three cultures and you've got, because of that, you have language barriers. Sure. And so to have a conversation about tone and to start talking about, well, this mandolin has a lot of woof or a lot of bark or a lot of choppy or it's <laughs> bright or it's dark or it's, you know, what do those words mean in, in Jap Japanese and what do they mean in Chinese? What do they even mean in English? Yeah, yeah. When you say it's it's got a lot of oomph or it's got a lot of pop or it's okay, sustain is sustain, low end is low end, but which part of the low end spectrum are we talking about? So he and I got into this idea of like you know how wines have a flavor wheel. Have you ever yeah, heard of yeah. wine tasting where they have all the bright colors of like grassy and and uh, flinty grapefruit and these bright fruits. And then as you come around the wheel, you enter things like plum and, and uh, chocolate, tobacco, and these dark flavors are on the other side of the wheel. But there's like 25 different parts on the, on the clock. So we got into this idea of creating like a tone wheel 
so that we could have a conversation about tone and make sure that when you say bright, you're talking about the same thing when I say bright. Yeah, sure. Or at least attempt to have that kind of dialogue where we could get in there. And we even talked about frequencies, you know, and we, we would go in the studio and bring up 2K, 3K, or 5K and talk about the differences between those, you know. One is apricot and the other is lemon and the other is <laughs> pure acid. <laughs> <laughs> so this was, a, this was a great way to just kind of get in there and talk about, you know, wood types and finish types, and density of wood, speed of sound on a piece of wood, which I knew nothing about mm. before meeting him. Speed of sound, what is that? course I, I can imagine it but he here was somebody who could measure it in a chunk of wood that hadn't been shaped yet so he came over to Europe and went down into the Dolomites and bought a bunch of spruce you know he studied with some great builders Mike Chemnitzer who builds the Nugget Mandolins was he was mentoring with him a bit and um it's also very humble, you know, when we would compare mandolins and he would, you know, have me and John Reichman's lores, and then he would have one of his early Northfields. He, he was the kind of guy that could go like, wow, you guys just kicked my butt, <laughs> you know. I, those mandolins are just sick. And I got to go back to the drawing board here and really, you know, school. And he did. And, and now he's, you know, of course, he's also conscious of, you know, the fact that he's trying to stay within a certain price point on his instruments. And that was part of what we were all about, was to create something that average player could have and, and afford and, and still be a fantastic instrument. And so he's been able to do that you know, for, for the kind of money you spend on those instruments. That's a lot of mandolin, you know. Yeah, yeah. Because, what is it, seven grand or something? That's like, wow. <laughs> and I use it. You know. I remember the first time I played one, I'd heard a lot about them. And then there's, there's not many of them over in the UK, but there's a there's a great shop in Brighton that stocks right. some American-made instruments. Mm. And they had, they had three in, and I picked them all up, and, and, just, and each one just sounded better than the last. And I'd play on the same day I played an Ellis <laughs> and some Webbers and some Collings. Like, mm. I was playing them next to nice mandolins. Um, and just uh, mm. kept going back to one of the Northfields and picking it up again, and you know, they mm. just it just had a, a sort of resonance to it that um, that felt alive. Yeah, was it the artist model? Was it the uh, the X the uh, five bar? It was the um, the big man. The F five. Oh yeah. yeah, that's that's a just... That's what Adam played. Um, they're doing this thing with um, trying to build an instrument that's super light and resonant but that also has some power so that when you lean in on it, it doesn't collapse and, and distort, which can happen with super responsive instruments that they don't hold up to heavy playing. Mm -hmm. So he's experimenting with, instead of just having the two tone bars to have uh, five little ones kind of placed here and there on the face so that you still get some support. And yet you, you've got a very light piece of wood. And there's some other things, as he says, up under the hood. 
that he's not afraid to play around with and tone bar shapes and and different graduation points. Um, he did a lot of measuring of, of old instruments and other builders' instruments to see where they're carving the tops to get certain kinds of sounds and getting to the point where you can almost dial in certain frequencies by where you graduate. It's very fascinating stuff. I love it. And it's sort of that the point you made about him being humble and going back to the beginning of this this chat about Northfield and you were sort of saying about being difficult to criticize somebody's art, but you definitely get the sense that mm. somebody like anybody, I, th- I think like most truly artistic minds are aware that their art is a journey and a, an exploration and is born out mm. of curiosity as much as anything else. Mm. And most, mm-hmm. most truly artistic people for me seem the, the curiosity to keep being curious outweighs the need to show you what they can do. And so if you're dealing with somebody who's aware they're constantly on a journey, then that's, I think that's when those conversations mm-hmm. get so exciting because it's, it ne- the, the mm-hmm. curiosity never stops. And that, that is a, mm-hmm. a really um, compelling and attractive quality in anybody. It's certainly what it's, what our job is, as I see it. <laughs> yeah, totally. I know. Yeah. It's funny. I had um, a chat with Tristan Scroggins a few weeks ago and we were sort of talking about oh. authenticity in music, but also, the idea of being authentic to yourself. And it all kicked off with a mm. conversation about Punch Brothers covering Church Street Blues. But this, the idea that as a musician, your job is to, that there is a unique U-shaped space in the world that nobody else can occupy. Mm. And your job is to occupy mm-hmm. that space as fully as you can. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of all your job is as that's an artist, it. is to find out who you are and go and be that. That's it. I love what Tony Rice said about that. So many people try and copy him, you know. And then as you start to look at his interviews and things. He was all about somebody being himself. You know, that was all he wanted. And his favorite musician was Vassar Clements. Mm. This is the most unique violinist of the whole bluegrass world. And um, I love that. And yet people want to copy him. Yeah. Well, and it goes back to his conversation. <laughs> More than anybody and try and sound exactly yeah. like him. It goes back to that, um, that idea of trying to keep things pinned to pinned in a case like a butterfly once something exists we want it to stay that way and like those things mm-hmm. bluegrass and Vassa clements and tony rice were all born out of a spirit of progression and curiosity and creativity and i wonder if these things go in in wheels you know if they're cyclical in terms of the early bill monroe with Swat and scruggs and benny martin was super creative mm. then the period after that was less creative everybody was trying to copy them and then the period in the early 70s with Newgrass Revival and David Grisman and Tony Rice and Tony Trishka was super explosive. And then the period after that, right around the time of O Brother and you could say Alison Krauss, was a more conservative period. Maybe the Punch Brothers are introducing another new creative uh, wing. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, and maybe it's human nature to to do this, um, to go through a period of expansion and then maybe fear strikes in and you want to hold it back because it's going too far. Uh, um, or maybe it's a product of um, technology. You know, I was talking about the radio during Monroe's early days affecting how they played music. They thought they were playing jazz and they were playing some jazz. You know, Limehouse Blues and Farewell Blues, those were swing tunes. Yeah. Um, and 
then the period in the early 70s was the period when the people from the the big cities, the northern cities, got interested in the music. Before that, it was southern music. But David Christman is from New York, and Tony Trishka, and Matt Glazer, and mm-hmm. all these guys were from, and all the West Coast guys were in, finding out about the music, and then they were bringing other influences into it because of where they were from. They were hearing, you know, they grew up on the Beatles, and they were hearing jazz, rock and roll, and fusion. Then you have, by the time you get to the Punch Brothers, you now you have the internet. Yeah, yeah, and so every the lid is completely off the pot, and now there's this. Okay, now the challenge is, how are we going to deal with all of that stuff that we're finding out about? If you're a 15 year old kid in East Tennessee and you want to play the mandolin, and you look up mandolin, you're no longer Uncle Joe's pick and parlor. You're now in Brazil, seeing Hamilton do Holanda, and you're seeing Chris Thiele, and you're seeing Mike Marshall and Katarina Lichtenberg play Bach and Avi Avital playing Israeli stuff. Mm-hmm. The top of your head comes off, and you've only got 50 years to digest all that and create your own voice within it. That's the challenge. And that's what one of the biggest sort of themes of these interviews that I've been doing has become really is just it's connecting all that together and this sense that if you start out that can be overwhelming like there's so much music and if your first experience of the mandolin is seeing Chris Thiele play like Chris can play when he chooses to um you can go well I'm not this is just a different type of human being for me and why bother but but you know from talking to Brian Sutton talking to Tristan Scroggins and talking to other people this real clear sense has, has definitely come about that everybody's just on a journey and you start from nothing and where however far you get down that journey you're still kind of one foot after the other learning improving learning improving um and and there aren't and an elite it's class of, you know. pretty much it it's we should we're blessed to have all this access um I, I wish I could have had all this access when I was that age. I was hungry for it. Um, and yet I was I was taking it in as best I could. I suppose that's what every musician has always ever done. I mean, Bach did the same thing. He invited everyone he could to his house when they were passing through town. Um, and he was the one who took the English and the French and the Italian, all these different styles of Baroque music and synthesized them into one thing. Um, the generation before him, I think, was more regional and, and focused on their own uh, backlog of stuff they had access to. So here we are. We just have to do the best we can. You know, it's, it's all there. You can, you can get information immediately, find out what it is. And then you decide, yeah, it's it, it probably just comes down to passion, you know, if you're, if you're passionate about something and, and decide to get obsessed about it. It almost doesn't matter what it is. And then yeah, those, yeah. those collections of things that you're going to choose to pick are going to be who you are. And it'll be as deep as it is that you go down. Yeah, yeah. 
And if your only way of doing that is to continuously keep dropping a needle on a record to work out how somebody played something because you didn't have the internet to show mm -hmm. you, then that's what you do, isn't it? <laughs> that's what I had to do. I had to wait six weeks for, for it to arrive in Lakeland, Florida. <laughs> so I wore that sucker out, man. <laughs> I still have some of them. The early Newgrass Revival records. Just learned every Sam Bush solo note for note that I could, you know when you could turn an LP down to half speed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, he slid into that third note just a little bit. Well, let me go back over. <laughs> I think um, I think that's, that's the really interesting thing because what you were saying before about these sort of half a dozen issues that everybody faces when you're teaching them on artist works. And... And all the all the VEs are out there for everybody to see. And this, but but all of this, like nothing, you have to learn everything for yourself at some point, don't you? Like how much information there is, and how much somebody can tell you something. It's not the idea of sort of you can read a book and understand something, but then go reread it and implement it. And it's that mm. you know, learning is the thing that you have to come to in your own. A lesson is a lesson when you've learned it, not when somebody's told you it exists. Totally personal. I guess it is. You know, I mean, just when I think about the the conversations I've had with Katerina, for instance, how different her world is. And when we played Bach together for the first time, some of the things she might have been yelping about, about how I was phrasing something. And only now understanding, completely understanding what she was talking about. But that's that's a lot of time. And you just have to, mm. it, it comes to you it sort of trickles into you physically over time. You know, it does just because somebody says it doesn't necessarily resonate. You know, it, you're not going to just be able to do it just because I said so. <laughs> and so I think about that with my students on, uh, online, exactly that thing um, that it comes and it, and it also comes from, physically being in a room with people playing. And, and that is the one thing that, um, I mean, it's a hard time now uh, with the whole pandemic and people not being able to hang. Um, when I think about the hundred people that I studied from, I studied from them through the practice mm. of, of playing with them, you know, and they taught me. And you just have to be aware of what's going on around you, and it and it'll come in. And uh, you can't. I don't. I think there's certain parts that you can't get any other way. I was talking to Kat about it because she she talks a lot in her lessons to her students. You know, said, man, my voice is gone. I've been talking for eight hours. I'm like, Kat, why do you talk so much? You know, I learned so much from you for, because we played together. Hmm. why don't you just play with these kids and just yesterday she came back she said wow i was playing with some so-and-so student and she just in the course of the hour she just got so much better and it was so much fun <laughs> and these little bits of information you, you just can't you can you can talk and talk and talk and talk and the student says yeah uh -huh, uh -huh, okay okay i'll try it that that don't do it yeah, yeah. get out your instruments play and uh I mean, when I think about playing with Tony Rice, ah, shit, man. You know, it was just like a, 
It's like a firestorm, an intimate firestorm <laughs> washing over you, like a bath, but also burning all your skin off <laughs> and re and replanting it with new skin <laughs> that was much better. <laughs> wow. That's the, I mean, and, yeah. Uh, I don't know. You just can't get that. And he got it from JD who got it from Bill, who got it from Jimmy Martin, who got it from Bill Monroe. And, you know, so that lineage of apprenticeship is, uh, you know, that's just, that's just real. That's real stuff. That's how, I think that's how classical music was taught. I think that's how jazz is taught. Indian classical music. You know, I'm friends with Zakir Hussain. We're going to play together, actually, in a couple of weeks. And, um, you know, his dad was Ala Raka. And, and has, the, I think, three generations of tabla players. Mm-hmm. And he played, as a kid, he played for all the singers during their lessons. He was their accompanist. So how many melodies did he hear? Yeah, yeah. And this used to say you talk about the amount of musicians that came through Bill Monroe's band and went on to be, you know, major figures in their own right. And the same with Miles Davis, the amount of people who started off in Miles Davis's band and went yeah. on to, that's, you know, it's all part of the process. Daryl has this theory that it, each genre of music is, is actually created by a very small group of people. About 12, he says which is an interesting thing to chew on. <laughs> I mean, you can, if you look at, you know, you, you could, for example, look at the bands that came out of CBGBs in the seventies and then how many right. thousands of indie alternative college rock bands, punk bands, they spawned over the next 20 or 30 years and still are doing. Right. You know, that, out of that about was a how many groups? Tiny little place. Or jazz fusion. Yeah. If, you say, if you're saying jazz fusion, you're talking about Weather Report, Return to Forever, John Pony, right? Mahavishnu. Yeah. Well, there's that, there's that sort of classic um, cliche, cliche that, you know, the Velvet Underground only sold about 200 records, but everybody who bought one of them went on to be an influential musician, you know? Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. I like that Thanks idea. To- because it's a very, it's like a hotbed uh, of creativity around a certain language that's agreed upon. Hmm. And, um, and I think that gives it a kind of focus and an intensity that's, uh, that's pretty magical. Um, when I think of what I'm doing, say, at the Savannah Music Festival was my, I don't know if you're aware of that workshop I do down there, the acoustic music seminar. Yeah, it's yeah. a super high level yeah. thing for young people. I bring 16 kids down there every year and they work on their own music. They create ensembles, mixing and matching all the different players. And then at the end of the week, they have to play a show or pick the best material that they've worked on. You talk about a hot, whew, a boiling pot. <laughs> Tristan was there. I mean, it, most of Hocktail were there. Mile 12 all met there. I mean, so many bands have formed out of that thing. Mm. And uh, just something I'm really proud of, you know, to, just to create a kind of 
bu bubbling cauldron for them to all work on and work together and then meet each other. Maybe we even, I'm not sure if we have a baby that's been created out of that yet, but uh, <laughs> it's bringing, bringing people together, like the ability to bring people together to make meaningful connections is a really powerful and beautiful mm. thing. I'm pretty proud of some of the things I've created for that, you know, with the mandolin symposium that I did with David yeah. and Chris and um, now doing this stuff with Katarina, teaching these workshops around. Yeah, the teaching thing is always, it's always been a part of what I do. Maybe because I see myself as a student as much as anything. Kind of why I do this was so that I could learn and not only learn about music, but learn about everything. You know, the music's taken me all over the world and, you know, introduced me to these different cultures and the history of places. And, um, you know, that's, that's how I learned about so much was through the music. So this little, Little mandolin. <laughs> uh, long may that journey continue. I think that sort of takes us back to where we started, really, about everything just being a journey and nothing's fixed in time. And that idea of continuing to be curious and creative and, and move on, you know. I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this today, Mike. It's, this has been a, a real pleasure. Um, is there anything you've got coming up that you want to share with us? Well, um, yeah, the... The show on the 18th of November with Zakir Hussein. I'm going to be a part of that show at the Cologne Philharmonic. I'm very excited about wow. that. Um, he's got a couple of, uh, he's got great Indian violinists coming in and, or no, Sarangi player. And um, a couple other interesting, very interesting musicians. Should be a fun show. Then Daryl Anger's coming over here to Germany and we're going to play with the WDR Big Band. Bob Mincer from the Yellow Jackets is their arranger, and uh, he arranged a bunch of the tunes from Daryl and my past recordings. And for us with Big Band, I can't imagine what he's come up with. I'm so excited about that. That's the 18th of oh, be fun. December. Yeah. Cool. And then I'm going out on tour with Edgar Meyer, Sam Bush, and Edgar's son, George Meyer, in January for a couple of weeks. Oh, fantastic. All over the East Coast of the US. So um, that'll be fantastic to hang with those boys and play some of that music. I imagine it'll be a mixture of things we've done with uh, maybe some of the music we did with with Bela Fleck on the trio record and maybe some of those things with Joshua Bell that we recorded for Sony. George is a monster violinist and can hang with all of that stuff. And it's always a treat to be in the presence of Sam Bush's backbeat. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, when you talk about chop, there's a there's a mighty chop there. That is it. That's the beginning and the end of it, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Which is unfair because it's not the beginning. <laughs> That's brilliant. Thanks so much for doing this, Mike. I've I've really enjoyed this. It's been an absolute treat. It was a pleasure, Matt. Thank you for taking the time too, and I'll do it again anytime you wish.
Cool, so that was the interview that I did with Mike Marshall. I hope you enjoyed that. I got a lot out of doing it, um, and I hope you got a lot out of listening to it. Um, we've got another three of these lined up over the f- next coming weeks, so we'll have some more interviews on the podcast before the end of the year. In the meantime, I'll be back with some more tunes next week. Have a great weekend, stay safe, and happy picking. Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collings Guitars and Mandolins, making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s. Visit collingsguitars.com and find out why.